This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the growth API. mParticle is the best way to connect your customer data to all the leading marketing and measurement partners. And you need those partners to run and grow your business in a multi-screen world. It's a data platform that's trusted by both marketers and engineers alike at forward-thinking brands like Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, Venmo, and many others. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can help modernize your data infrastructure and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as an internet refugee trying to escape your awful tweets, Donald Trump, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Mike McHugh, the CEO of Flipboard, and someone who I've known for a very, very, very long time through many companies. I think I met him at Netscape, I believe. That's right. It's a news aggregation company founded in 2009 that is now relaunching its namesake apps. Mike previously worked at IBM, Netscape, and co-founded Tell Me Networks, which was acquired by Microsoft in 2007. Mike, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. This is great to be here. No problem. So um, let's talk a little bit about what the news is actually around Flipboard. You guys announced today... Explain to the people. Yeah, our Explain to the people what Flipboard is. I uh, mean, we- Flipboard is uh, was launched in 2010 to give people a magazine-like experience for getting great stories and products that are recommended by people who share a passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's... Uh, in many ways, trying to modernize the notion of a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe in the idea that, you know, the first principles of a magazine where you pull together great stories that are thoughtfully collected by mm-hmm. editors, you have reviews, you have a feature well, you've sure. got opinion pieces, and you have magazines that are focused around practically any passion you can think of. Mm-hmm mountain biking, rock climbing, politics, foreign policy. Right, horses, and whatever. Horses. And th- this is something that I think is uh, very much a need uh, for people um, when they're thinking about their work, their play, mm-hmm. themselves, their world. And it's a, an idea that I think needs to be modernized for a mobile social world. Okay. And, and so that's what we're trying to do with Flipboard is help people find and discover great stories that inspire them, that inform them, and help them be better at what they do and what they love. Mm-hmm. And so that was when it was founded. This was a long time ago before Facebook was really big and other uh, Twitter and other sites. So th- the concept was that the internet was too big to understand that people would create these reading things. Yeah, in some ways, you know, Flipboard grew from an observation that I had once uh, I had left Microsoft. Um, I uh, was, you know, not thinking I was going to start another company. Mm-hmm. I was uh, on a plane uh, with my family getting, you know, uh, bought a bunch of magazines to read on the plane. Mm-hmm. And I came across this one magazine. It was National Geographic. And there was this amazing article in there. And I remember really enjoying the article, read it from front to back. And it was just this beautiful experience. And when I I, I remember that I had seen that article online and I went to go look at it online on the web and I remember it just being a shadow of itself. It was mm-hmm. sort of spread across multiple pages. All the images were moved into a gallery. There mm-hmm. was like toolbars and pop-ups and mm-hmm. menus and so on. And, and I thought, wow, you know, it's too bad that these amazingly beautiful, incredible stories are reduced to this. Right. In a, in, it's in, a lot of people are trying digital. to do the idea of just you put stuff up on the web. You just poured it essentially that was initially what happened exactly and and then and it and you know i think a lot of the basic ideas of how you know articles could look were were very limited because you had you know 90s technology and low bandwidth connections and there was no such thing as a touch screen and mm-hmm. and so i thought you know kind of back to my days at netscape when i was you know helping to try to convince a lot of these publishers to get on the web to begin with but wow, you know, it's like we're stuck in the 90s here. Yeah. There's an opportunity to, you know, create a new platform for stories to look great on a mobile digital device. Um, and so when you were doing that, you, I mean, you got this idea that you 
just wanted to do it, you would just love Tell Me Metworks. Let's go through your history a little bit, because I think that's interesting before we get to what you guys are doing. So where did you start out? I remember having a long lunch with you. You explained this to me. Yeah, I think I met you at Tell Me. Yeah. No, no. Netscape. Was it Netscape? Yeah. And and I think, uh, you, you know, at Netscape, those days were very heady. I mean, we were thinking about yeah. how content should... You got there from where? You I came there. there. So Netscape acquired my company, uh, my first startup called Paper Software. We were doing mm-hmm. virtual reality mm-hmm. uh, and created the first plugin for Netscape Navigator. Mm-hmm. And it was a VR... I mean, you were doing virtual. There wasn't such a thing. There was. There was something <laughs> called VRML, Virtual Reality right. Modeling oh, yeah. Language. It was an open standard. Mm-hmm. It was about 20 years ahead of its time, maybe 30, maybe even 40 years ahead of its time, depending mm-hmm. on how you think VR is going now. Right. And... Uh, uh, but it was very cool, and Mark Andreessen uh, and I met, uh, and he saw it, and he loved it, mm-hmm. and uh, one thing led to another, and ultimately, they decided to acquire the company. What was their uh, aim to buy company. that? What was their aim? It was um, to, you know, Mark really believed in the idea of, you know, all sorts of different kinds of media being connected together on the sure. web, mm-hmm. and virtual reality and 3D graphics. You know, he, Mark's very prescient, saw a lot of where things were going to ultimately go with the web. Mm -hmm. And so he saw this as a real opportunity. And interestingly enough, you know, my team, we continued to do the 3D work at Netscape, but ultimately we actually ended up working more on things like the dynamic HTML rendering engine and Mm -hmm. and now creating a a way for HTML pages to act and function more like apps and create kind of the foundation that became Web 2.0. And um, that was amazing. Uh, and then, and then I worked a lot to try to get um, publishers to adopt that mm-hmm. and uh, create new ways to present content on Netscape because you were trying Netscape. to get people on the web. I mean, that was yeah. it wasn't even like we couldn't get publishers and others interesting content on the web. Yeah, for people to look at with the Netscape browser. I mean, really, you're, you sort of created the television, and we're trying to create the shows mm-hmm. or help people build the shows, essentially. Exactly, and figure out how to monetize it mm-hmm. and everything. It was all. You know, yeah. wide, wide open. Was Paper Stuff your first company? Was it? it was my first real company that mm-hmm. I, I, you know, um, I had a, a company when I was in high school called M Cubed Software. Oh, we no. made video games. <laughs> and uh, I, I called it M Cubed because it was, was me and two other mics. What was your best video game that you made? Uh, actually, a game called Night Mission that mm-hmm. actually did pretty well. It was mm-hmm. uh, a game where, you know, you had a helicopter and you rescued hostages in the mm-hmm. desert. It was modeled after the Iranian hostage crisis. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it was a really cool, fun thing to do. And, and interestingly enough, um, we, uh, I sold it to another company and we worked on it together. And we, we actually released the source code for the game and we wrote a book mm-hmm. about how to write video games with the right. source code. Right. And it did really well. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when I was in high school, I was getting, you know, revenue what from... What made you do that? What made you do... I didn't realize you had a high school company. It's so nerdy. It is very nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was... Uh, I was really into robots when mm-hmm. I was in grammar school. I mm-hmm. built robots inspired by Star Wars and R2-D2. Mm-hmm. That quickly got me into computers. The mm-hmm. whole idea that you could Were actually have a computer. My, technical? No, my parents ran a small ad agency. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just the, the two of them. This was where? In upstate New York. So why did you get into robots? What was that? It was something that I, I, yeah, and I wanted to be an astronaut. I absolutely, Mm -hmm. you know, was serious about Mm -hmm. becoming an astronaut. And, and then um, my dad one day bought me a computer and it changed my life. I see. That's, that's the old story, right? Yeah. Change it. Which computer was it? The Texas Instruments 99.4A computer. Yeah. And why did it change your life? 16K of RAM. It changed my life because I was, uh, there was no real opportunity in upstate New York. And in that time, that Mm -hmm. era, economically or whatever to you know for what I was going to do with my life Mm -hmm. I had no sense of what I wanted to do and Mm -hmm. when I found two things the computer and the ability to actually create things on a Mm -hmm. computer and code and do storytelling on a computer which is how I used video thought of video games and then also one day I ran across an article an interview with Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. where he talked about how the computer was like a bicycle for the mind. Ah, yes. And how it empowered, part. yes, mm-hmm. and how it would empower the human race. And the combination of those two things, I was completely, at that point, right. hooked. Right, because what, what, why did that speak to you? I think it had to do with helping people of any background achieve the dreams and things that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. To be able to say and publish and sort of, you know, communicate at much broader levels than were possible before. Mm-hmm. The possibilities just, you know, were were so wide open. Mm-hmm. And there was just so many places to 
to innovate and to experiment and learn. So it was just, it was incredibly fortunate that that was kind of this sort of the dawn of this whole information really age. Was. And I was, I was right in the, the, right. the beginning of it. it was so really you, you went to college where? Where did you go to college? Well, I, I only took a couple of courses in college. Oh, didn't I didn't college. actually go oh, to... one of those. Yeah. I went to... So I was so I was I had gotten accepted to go to the Air Force Academy. I through congressional bill, right? I was exactly. I was going to be a astronaut, so I applied to the Air Force Academy to do that. You have to get a congressional nomination, which I managed to get. It was I couldn't believe I had been able to do that. My father, though, uh, I was the oldest of six. My father had had cancer mm-hmm. and uh, been sick for many years, and ultimately he passed away just as I was graduating high school. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't leave. Also, my dad, you know, said that uh, I would, the rigid military world wouldn't be the right thing for me. Of course, when he was alive, mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, yeah. do the opposite of what he was saying. But once he was gone, I really thought about that. And I thought, you know, to be an astronaut, I'm going to have to drop bombs on people. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem right. Right. You know, it, it, there's got to be a different path to space. Sure. And, uh, and so ultimately, I decided to, you know, just pursue the dream of building a company and, mm-hmm. you know, doing that in the tech, the emerging tech world. Did you come out to Silicon Valley then immediately or no? So I got to the Silicon Valley when That's Netscape cool. acquired us. I see. Okay, so, but you were working in New York then. I was in Woodstock, New York. Wow. So you yeah. stayed there when you were doing your company. Yep, we did. I, I stayed there uh, and built paper software over the course of about um, six uh, years. And then uh, it was acquired by Netscape and I was at Netscape for about what three. What did you think when you got here? I was just here. blown away. I was amazed. I mean, I only read about these people. Yeah, Mark you know. was on the cover of Time. Yeah, Mark Andreessen and Bill Campbell and mm-hmm. John Doerr and Jim Clark. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it was just... Like action figures. I couldn't... Yeah, it's dollar. like... Yeah. I felt like that garage band that manages to open up for the Rolling Stones one day, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I That's couldn't funny. believe it. And so you got here, worked at Netscape. Of course, mm-hmm. that, that ran that right into a wall. I mean, but you were there for those key years where they were... It was the hottest company... It, it was what, the, it was the hottest company until the day I got there. <laughs> it started its long decline. Long decline. Long uh, I mean, we, down we, the stairs. we, you know, it's funny. I learned so many lessons there, mm-hmm. and I made a lot of mistakes at Netscape that have uh, that echo to this day in in, in me. And such um, as, well, I think the number one mistake that I made when I was there is that I over-rotated on the competition. Mm-hmm. I woke up every day thinking about Microsoft mm-hmm. and why they were trying to kill us and how to avoid that. Right. Instead of Training waking product. up every day and thinking about, you know, the people that were using our product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was a visceral well, they were a lesson scary. for me. They were there and threatening you at all times, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how it was fascinating. Know? Yeah. I, I, was, I, I participated in the, the Department of Justice uh, action mm-hmm. and... Uh, actually helped write the brief to, you know, um, break up Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And um, ironically, they bought a company of yours. That's did, right. Did you think that they were the cause of Netscape's downfall? No, they were the accelerant. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the cause, and by the way, I don't think Netscape had a downfall. I, in, just to be clear, I think Netscape was a breakthrough company mm-hmm. who did amazing things and that led uh, to other things but, for other people and was acquired for you know mm-hmm. four billion dollars that went to eight billion dollars in total mm-hmm. value i mean it, yeah, that's a success story in that mm-hmm. regard but you know it could have been bigger it could right. have done more mm-hmm. i think the key thing uh is that uh we the way we handled the competition from microsoft put us more on the defensive mm-hmm. and um we thought more about them than actually what we were trying to do for our the customers mm-hmm. and the future of the web. Even though if you had told us that back then, we would have said, no, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But looking back on it in hindsight, mm-hmm. I think that was. If you compare Netscape to Intuit, let's say. Intuit, if you remember, mm-hmm. Microsoft was going to acquire Target, Intuit. Yeah, they, and they targeted them. Right? And then, and then the, the, the Federal Trade Commission ruled against that acquisition. And then um, Microsoft then basically went to go compete with Intuit. And they came out with Microsoft Money. Mm-hmm. to compete with Quicken. Mm-hmm. And I remember a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal, and it said, today we're giving away money. And mm-hmm. Microsoft just gave away Microsoft money. Same playbook that they used against Netscape. Right. And um, Intuit, instead of kind of over-rotating on that competition, just focused on making Quicken better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, systematically every day. And what happened was uh, they thrived. Right. Uh, and uh, I think that was just a visceral lesson for me and a lot of other people. Right, right. Well, it was, a, it was an unusual time. I remember, you know, it was very 
scary to have Microsoft come at you the way they did. And also, you know, I think one of the things too is that um, we focus. We were a web company that converted ourselves into a software company, right? Right. Which you know, from a pure revenue point of view, we were public. You know, you that was the business model that made sense. It was the clear business model. Right. You know, had it just been a couple of years later when the ad business model, right. know, which Mike Homer was a huge advocate yeah. of, was he pushing remember he hard tried on. to shift into being Yahoo yeah. after making Yahoo successful. Exactly. You know, because Yahoo was on the bottom of the Netscape search page. They were hosted in our data they center were, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Yahoo helped Google. And, then... uh-huh. and Mark and I uh, actually were advocates of acquiring Yahoo, but, mm-hmm. you know, internally people didn't really get that. You know, why would you do that? We're a software company. <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting. <laughs> How do these guys so, make money? Yeah, well, good thing you didn't buy it now. I mean, maybe yeah. at the time. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it's so funny when you think about all the acquisitions that could have happened and you know, yeah. Yahoo looked at Google and, yeah. you know, AOL looked at Google and it was kind of interesting that during that time period. So you then left... You left Netscape to start Tell Me. Yeah. When um, Netscape was acquired by AOL, mm-hmm. I moved on and I started Tell Me. And that was uh, a voice re- information service. I guess. Right. I People know. used to call it a voice portal mm-hmm. back when portals were a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to call it Dial Tone 2.0 back mm-hmm. when Dial Tone was a thing. Yeah. And uh, the idea is you say what you want and you get it to your right. phone. Right. So and Echo, was, essentially. It basically. Uh, yeah. It was the, the idea is like the internet and you access it right. with Why your voice. Why did you go into that? What was the thinking behind that? Well, a friend, a guy that I worked with at Netscape, who I hired at Netscape, he was also the youngest employee at Netscape, a guy named Angus Davis. Brilliant, just incredibly type A person. Um, he uh, he came to me one day and he's like, you know, we got to figure out how to build a voice browser, mm-hmm. you know, for the web. And, um, you know, I kind of dismissed the idea initially. He kept at it, kept at it. And then when we left, when I left Netscape, you know, he came at that idea again. He's like, we should do this. And, you know, I thought about it. I was like, wow, this is actually a really interesting idea. And there was a a new language that had been started to, or a new standard called voice XML. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of my VRML days, the virtual reality modeling language. This is voice, you know, markup language. And the idea of connecting an audio web and allowing people to navigate that from a mobile device, from a phone, with their voice seemed like, you know, a no-brainer. And talking more to Angus about it, we really got excited about the idea. And uh, so we started to develop it and hired some phenomenal people. We actually got um, John Gene Andrea, who runs Google to Google Search today, mm-hmm. became our founding CTO. He, I, got, I got to know him at Netscape. And then a guy named Hadi Partovi, who uh, was my arch enemy mm-hmm. at Microsoft, my nemesis, right. <laughs> who was building Internet Explorer, he became our head of engineering. Mm-hmm. And the four of us set out to build this company. Uh, and it was it was know, another high company, big funding. Big fund. Big Th- funding. That was, yeah, we raised a lot of money, $250 million right. in about an 18-month period. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and then? And then the Internet crashed yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the dot-com market and crashed voice and portal was too early voice portal was way too early you know that's i mean both with virtual reality and with voice portals i mean we were you know i i really believe in skating to where the puck is going to be mm-hmm. but you know at some point you have to stay in the same stadium you know you can't just wait forever for the yeah. puck to get there yeah yeah um, when we get back we'll talk about what happened to tell me and then get into what's going on with flipboard today it's also been an up and down ride and you've been trying to figure out how to and a lot of people in the whole content business has been shifting rather dramatically yeah. but we will talk about that when we get back but before then i was in silicon valley recently for a unique experience i was one of the first to meet curry a personal robot who is full of personality and does so much. It's a tiny little robot that rolls around your house and almost acts like a pet or I'm not sure what it is. It's a person pet kind of thing. And it's a pleasure to have around. She understands when you talk to her and then responds in her own language beeps, which you'll understand as you get to know her. Curry moves around all on her own. She'll learn the layout of your home, knows to avoid obstacles like stairs and furniture. She also makes a great companion. Have her wake you up in the morning or greet you when you get home. She'll even follow you around playing this podcast if you want. I think you should do that. When you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears. She'll check on your kids or your pets and investigate loud noises. She can show you what's happening also right from your phone. So check Curry out. She's available for pre-order now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I dot com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, guess who I talked to this week? You don't know, but I will tell you. Gabriel Snyder, who's had many jobs. Um, the job he had this week 
was writing a uh, cover story for Wired Magazine about the future of the New York Times. He talked the newest Salzburger, so we talked all about whether or not the Times can succeed in the crazy mixed-up world of digital publishing in the future. It's good. He's also a former Gawker editor. I'm speaking to all former Gawker editors over the course of the next couple of years. Sounds great, right? It is great. Go listen. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am here with Mike McHugh, a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's had a lot of hot companies, and he's, he's running Flipboard now, but he's had a long career in Silicon Valley, places like Netscape, Tell Me, and apparently a virtual reality company when he was a teenager, um, essentially. So, Mike, we were talking about, uh, tell me, you were early to the voice game, which is now hot, which is now really like with Amazon and Google and everything else. Talk about just missing times, because you were mm-hmm. saying you have, you've got to be in the same stadium as the puck, essentially. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that that's hard to do as an entrepreneur when you have a big idea that it's way too early? I think, yeah, I think you can run the risk of either being too far out there or too kind of near. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of those things about building a company. Uh, you know, you get, you kind of try to have to figure out the right timing. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes you might get it right, sometimes you might not. There's mm-hmm. a certain amount of luck that comes along with that. But I, I think that for me, you know, as a entrepreneur, you know, it's, it's very gratifying to work on products and technologies that ultimately help shape things, whether it's our company or something else that someone else does later on down the road. It's all part of the collective advancement of sure. the technology realm. So, but, you know, obviously if you're building a company, you want to try to find the right zone and, right. um, that's, a, that's important. Right. So tell me, raise a lot of money, hot investors, the big company, yeah. but then you sold. What happened there from your perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, we sold six years after right. the the internet crashed, mm-hmm. the dot-com dot crash. And, you know, so what happened there is like, you know, we were very successful early on in raising money right. and getting a product out there. Sure. But, you know, building a company is a lot of hard work, as you know, and it takes time to build out your business model, win customers, try different economic mm-hmm. you know, models out, get to profitability. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did for six years after the dot-com crash. Uh, we just you know, focused on first principles and kept building something that was valuable to our customers, our users, and you know, would be cash flow positive and eventually profitable. And you did deals with telcos. And- we did. We mm-hmm. did deals with major telcos, major enterprise companies, our voice platform became the way that a lot of 800 number calls were being answered. Mm-hmm. We had Which was a, not your initial business. Well, it was it was it was conceived of as in the, in the initial business. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly what we did is we built a voice platform and mm-hmm. then on top of that we built a consumer experience mm-hmm. and our thinking was that later we would go and add in right. um, enterprises like FedEx and American Airlines and so on, banks, etc. into that consumer portal. Uh, all on this platform, and we kind of connected all together. When the dot-com crash hit, the consumer portal that we built, which was monetized through advertising, mm-hmm. was one business. And then we had another business where we had gotten a couple of these companies on our platform. They were paying us to host their phone presence. Right. And we looked at those two things. And we're like, yeah, this whole ad thing is not going to work right now. Mm-hmm. So we had to make the painful decision to put that we didn't completely kill it. We just put it on ice and kind mm-hmm. of slowed it down. And we put all of our energy into building out the platform for these companies that at that time economically actually really needed what we had mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't have to go buy a bunch of hardware and software themselves to you run voice services. Platform. We right. created a, a outsourced, you know, in the cloud service for voice uh, telephony mm-hmm. um, and speech recognition. And it was really successful. And uh, over many years of just hard work, one deal after deal after deal. I had an amazing team that I did this with. And and sure enough, you know, at the time, you know, one day I had a meeting with Steve Ballmer and he was incredibly excited about what we were doing and the future. Bill Gates was always a big fan of speech recognition and voice user interface. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve asked if I'd be interested in um, becoming part of Microsoft. And we talked more about it and why were you Concluded, interested yeah. in becoming part of Microsoft? Well, and which is most entrepreneurs counter aren't. well, yeah. and also particularly for me, yeah. uh, where I didn't think they would ever give me a badge, right? Yeah. Uh, but the idea of Microsoft uh, scale and the opportunity for us to integrate what we were building into everything that they were doing 
um, was very attractive. Uh, and at that time, tell me, didn't have a lot of options for distribution. Right. Um, this was before the iPhone. There was no such thing as an app store. At that time, to get your apps out there, right. they had to be signed off by carriers. Yeah, right. You had to be putting them they were, on them. Yeah. yeah. And we had a consumer experience that we had just come out with where it was a kind of a light, it was a lot like Siri and it was really great, but we had like 3,000 people using it. Right. You know, and I knew it was the future, but that's a lot. there that's was not no. not very many customers for not, $50 million. That's right. right. Well, you know, and it was, it was not our main business. Right. But I saw that was where things were going, and I figured that at Microsoft we could actually make that happen. Yeah. And now it's become Cortana, right? Uh, and which is great. Uh, but it, but it was um, uh, at that time when I looked at how we would progress a Tell Me with that industry makeup, and we had been at the company now for eight years building. It just felt to me like uh, it was the right thing to do. And also, you know, when I looked at you know how many more you know, 800 numbers would mm -hmm. we get on our platform and how much longer is that business really going to last, sure. right? So I was looking at that too. So all of those things sort of factored into saying, you know, maybe this is a good idea. Do you feel good as an entrepreneur when you sell like that? Because it's not, that wasn't particularly a win, but it was a win. I mean, you got out, but it wasn't your first plan. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I don't go into this thinking about one outcome or another. One of the things that, you know, as an entrepreneur that always kind of, bugs me a little bit mm -hmm. is when people ask me, Mike, what's your exit strategy? Yeah. And that's actually a VC term. That's mm -hmm. like if you're an investor and then you get your money out. But as an entrepreneur, you cannot think that way, in because. my view, because you're in it for the cause. You're, mm -hmm. you, it's not, it's, you don't just like exit your dream. You mm -hmm. know, you don't exit something that, um, you know, that you believe in. Right. You, you figure out ways to continue to build it. In, mm -hmm. um, it's a very different way of thinking. Absolutely. And so for me... If you had asked me when I started, tell me, is it going to be public? Is it going to be sold? I don't see. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to be open-minded to whatever the right thing to do is at the time, given where you sure. are. Otherwise, I think you cut off options. I think, in fact, companies are more valuable when they have options. Right. You want to always preserve as many options as you possibly Including can. Sale. Yeah, exactly. And that's just that's just good, solid, you know, thinking as an entrepreneur. But I'll tell you though, that can't be your main. You can't be thinking about that mm -hmm. as your main thing. What you have to do is focus. Um, you know, when I when I'm coaching other you know CEOs, I really try to you know get them to realize that it's about building something that is inherently and durably valuable, mm -hmm. a real business that can actually be profitable mm -hmm. with people who really do love your product, right. and you're not just gaming the numbers and kind of gaming the valuation and gaming, sure. you know, for some kind of a exit. Mm -hmm. If that's the way you think about it, I mean, there are some people who do that, and yeah, they, they a lot, I think yeah, but. But I, I think that's just, um, it's a shallow existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not what technology in Silicon Valley is about. You know, this is about, you know, and I, it does sound a little now stereotypy, but, you know, it's about fusing technology with the world's problems and figuring out ways to advance, you know, society right. through technology. So you stayed at Microsoft for a New York minute, essentially. You were there for a little bit. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Was that Way cool? more than a New York minute. Oh, okay. All right. You stayed there. I but was then, super committed. And then wanted to leave because you were done with that and started. Mostly playing. just retire. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was pretty much, you know, fried So at why that did point. you start Flipboard? Well, I started Flipboard because this idea of creating a platform where great stories could thrive, mm -hmm. uh, help uh, journalism move more into the digital world in a way that was healthier mm -hmm. for the whole ecosystem was very attractive and very powerful uh, as an idea and um, as a mission. I think, you know, in life you have to have a purpose, you know. Mm -hmm. I took about a week or two of just, you know, not doing anything before I realized this is boring. Retirement is boring, right? And you say so, all, you do a lot of things. Yeah, then. well, I think that, like, you know, when you have a purpose, a friend of mine who who had cancer, he knew he was dying, and he once told me, you know, it's like, Mike, you're in your heroic phase of life right now. Mm -hmm. You you really need to, like, do something meaningful. Mm -hmm. Don't just, like, retire. Right. And, you know, so I really felt like, but, you know, this is one of those things that just grabs you. I, I didn't set out to start a company. I just, this idea which in many ways was rooted in some of the things that were left undone at Netscape, really grabbed me. Right. 
And it was early to these. Then there were a lot of them all of a sudden, a lot of these readers and sort of different takes on the content business. So talk just briefly, and then the next segment, talk about where it's going now. But what was the purpose then? Because it was a very different internet. And there were readers. There were all, uh, Google had one. There were so many of them, Paul. There were tons of these in this area. What has changed in that time period? Because initially it was really, really just make a magazine, but you've been changing the product quite a bit and trying to get it as, as the content needs are changing. What our guiding light is, is the concept of a magazine. And it still is. It's still different. has and, and still will be. If you want to know where we're going in the future, go pick up a great magazine and look at it mm-hmm. and compare where we are now with what is in that magazine. And that is our roadmap uh, and will be for a long time. There, a legendary guy named Clay Felker who started New York Magazine, mm-hmm. once called magazines tribal organizing documents. Ah, that's funny. Think about that, right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. You look at Wired. Wired isn't just a collection of tech stories. It's a collection of tech stories with a perspective. Right, with an organization. But right. you're, you're not making a magazine. You're making a digital magazine, but you're not actually being a publisher or a writer. or No, editor. we're not creating the content. Right. But what we're doing is we're curating it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're curating content and not just us, our community is curating it. Our publishing partners are curating it. Algorithms are curating it. It's this wonderful mixture Mm -hmm. of curation where you get basically what amounts to being a deeply personal magazine Mm -hmm. about something that you uniquely are massively passionate about Mm -hmm. uh, so that you can find stories in there that can inspire you and inform you, uh, help you do what you love better. But you're not, you don't consider yourself an editorial company or a media company or are you because a lot of silicon Valley people like to avoid being everyone involved. always yeah you know i just I think it's why. a bit of a false choice That's facebook's new thing we're not a media company. yeah i i think that or twitter which you were on the board of we're not a media company when in fact that's precisely what right i think that you know if you're in the business of selling advertising mm-hmm. and working with content then you know you're you're in the media industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean you're a media company? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. I think right. you know, if, of course, also similarly, if you're building apps that you download, you know that are built over you know years and with a platform in the back end and all this advanced technology. Well, they're your technology company too. So, sure. so the reality well, is, is that's a blend. Be in this era, right? You can't not be. You can't right. be just a media or just a technology company right. if you're in this space. Mm-hmm. So you know it's a hybrid. It's right. something new. And do you, when you are thinking of when you started versus now, what is the big difference between what's happened in that time period? Because it was a reader, I would call it. I think that's what we call it. It was a reader. Well, people thought of it as a reader. But yeah. interestingly enough, if you if you go back and look at the first product that mm-hmm. we came out with, the first release, we called it a social magazine. Mm-hmm. And we were very specific about that terminology. Now, some people like to put it into the terms that they know and understand it's a reader. you know. Right. And certainly it acted in many ways like a reader. But right. if you look just a little under the covers, every single story that you saw on Flipboard was a tweet. It came from Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um that's not a reader, right? A reader, you would take RSS feeds and you'd mash them together and that sure. would be what you would see. This was a very different thing. And, and when you go back and look deeper, mm-hmm. what you really see is that Flipboard was a browser for the social web. I see. That's so when, when, when I think about when um, we were in the early days before Flipboard was named or we knew what it was going to be uh, really, I gathered a group of my friends from the Netscape Microsoft days mm-hmm. together in my living room, and we did a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. We asked ourselves, what if the internet, the web, just got deleted by accident? Right. And we needed to create a totally new one from scratch. Um, just like if you accidentally delete answer. an email. This is, this is fun on a Saturday night. It's, it's a fun thing to do on a weekend. It really is. <laughs> All right. Add a few beers into the mix. Okay. It gets really fun. Yeah. But the fascinating thing about this is like yeah what would you do how would, would you still have a browser would you still would you still monetize the same way knowing all the things we've learned in a mobile social world and one of the big insights we had then is like this idea of the web where it was a document pointing to another document on a network mm-hmm. which was amazing just mm-hmm. that simple concept created more than a trillion dollars in value mm-hmm. just that concept has now way more sophisticated because what you have the web is now not just a node of, or a collection of documents. It's people and documents. Mm-hmm. It's people pointing to other people, people pointing to other sites, and effectively endorsing content or endorsing other people. And when you look at that web, that's a very different web than the web browser that we all use today right. was designed for. 
it's a much more sophisticated, much more powerful web, which I would argue the power of which we've only just begun to tap into. So this idea of a social web needs a social browser. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of thinking about Flipboard, not as a reader of just like go find some RSS feeds, but more as how do we navigate this network of people and content so that you can harness the value of that? How can you find all the mountain bikers who love to mountain bike in Santa Cruz right. and see the stories that they're sharing? Right. And that's a very different way to think about browsing the web. So as you started to do this, a ton of companies, including Google and others, competed. I know Google yeah. talked to you about buying you, and you didn't do that. Um, but they've all fallen by the wayside. AOL had one. Everybody Facebook. had one. Facebook had yeah. one. What was Facebook's call? I forgot. Paper. Paper. Okay, right. Oh, Ironically. Yeah. Ironically. Um, so Google's was what? Currents. Currents. And then AOL's was, I can't remember. It was called, um, oh, God, that one I forget. And nonetheless, lots of them. What, why hasn't this caught on? What do you th- and, and, and you guys... Are- because people have thought about it more as a reader. Mm-hmm. Right. We've thought about it more from a social perspective. Apple mm-hmm. News, it's a reader. Mm-hmm. There's no social elements no. in Apple News. It's no. not driven by anything, or by anyone that you know or anyone that you respect. No, it's it's just a bunch of algorithms giving you a bunch of articles. Mm-hmm. You can get that anywhere. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is create, come back to tribal organizing document. Mm-hmm. Think about the tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on which one you pick. Depending, yeah. And so the idea of fellow, like I love landscape photography with mirrorless cameras. And it's just one of my things I love to do with Leica cameras, right? Mm -hmm. There are other people who love that very same thing. I don't know who they are. I have a couple of them that are my friends. But there are people in the world who love that. And they're talking about that, sharing content about that. We want Flipboard to be able to help you find that tribe of people, share content together, so that you can be better landscape photography and like learn more about mirrorless cameras and Leica and so on. That's, if you take of that, you'd think about that for democracy, for gun control, or for wellness and fitness, or parenting, whatever. These passions, these things that drive people where they're truly passionate, not just mildly interested, but passionate. If we can collect those people and those stories together, like a magazine did, then I think we have something really special. And so that's not how anyone else has thought about this. Right, absolutely. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened, though, is that people are now just relying on what's vomited up on Facebook. And I say that very clearly, vomited up, because that's what it feels like. And it doesn't feel like there is organization or anything else. And we're going to talk about where that goes and what that means, because I think it doesn't mean good things. That's, I have a feeling it doesn't. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the growth API. Today, success as a media or commerce company requires you to take a data-driven approach across multiple screens. But doing that is hard. Legacy data platforms don't address modern data challenges, and SDK integrations are incredibly complex. MParticle is a simple and secure API, enabling you to connect easily to all of the leading marketing analytics and data warehousing tools in just minutes. The most forward-thinking brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, and Venmo all use mparticle to accelerate growth in a multi-screen world. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can simplify your data supply chain and drive engagement, retention, and monetization. Again, that's mparticle.com slash decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. We're talking to Mike McHugh, who is CEO of Flipboard and a longtime entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. So we had a conversation the other day. You've just done another iteration of Flipboard. Mm-hmm. And th- what's the big difference? It's not a, it's not a pivot. It's what? It's a- well, we're introducing a, a very powerful new capability we call Smart Magazines. And what that does is it allows you to, for a given passion like photography, you can pick the specific elements that you love about photography. So even more drilling down. Very, very deep personalization. So if you like a Leica camera or you like... Landscape, landscape photography you'll so see really just it's not all that. photography it's, right it's a particular tech is another great thing right mm-hmm. i you know right to before for uh, we would give everybody the same tech feed right all ed- editorially driven interestingly enough 
but if you're in enterprise software or well, you're you in you know, yeah. e-commerce or you're you're in drones, I mean, you're going to have a different perspective on tech. If you're an entrepreneur versus a designer versus a product manager versus a marketer, you're going to have a different perspective on tech. We want you to be able to you know personalize your own technology magazine and, mm-hmm. and have it become the definitive resource for you as a participant in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so you want to you want to drill down. You want to make it more specific, smart, I guess. More smarter. smart, more yeah. personalized. And also interestingly, it's a mix of editorial and algorithms that mm-hmm. has never been done before. So you're picking, you you guys are picking and making choices. We we're, we're picking, we're picking so stories and sources and so on. You are going against everything that's happening cuz now that isn't happening. It's become as I and I use the term vomit very particularly because that's what it feels like. And and you use the term, I think a uh, slot machine for content, which yes, I love. Yes, that's right. Explain that. Like right now, mm-hmm. that's what it feels like. Right? When you go to a news feed mm-hmm. type experience. Like a Facebook feed. Yep. Um, Twitter. You have no idea what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. You're going to get whatever your friends are sharing at that moment. That can be really great. It can also be, you know, not great. Uh, it's totally random. So that's what I mean by a slot machine for content. Uh, it's not about any one topic. It's just whatever is going on at the moment, whatever your friends decide to or share. Or it's fueled by crazy news. like Trump, And that's one of the Trump big problems. Nordstrom today. Ah, like if, you, if you rely on getting your news from your friends, or if you rely on getting your news through just a bunch of algorithms, mm-hmm. that's a very challenging, semi-dangerous way to get your news. So tell me why it's dangerous, because I agree, but it's what's happening. It's how yeah. people are doing. I think Facebook is, what, 50% of the news distribution? They become a very powerful player in this. They have and denials to the opposite. They really are a media. They really are a media distributor. They're a force, and mm-hmm. uh, it is how a lot of content gets distributed. Um, Which you're the, doing the exact opposite. We are. What we're trying to do is create an experience where, um, first of all, you go there for the topic, not for the people, right? So you go there or because a or, right or a passion, right? So you go there to go specifically learn about you know, to dive into politics or economics or, you know, gun control, immigration. Mm-hmm. That is, first of all, that's a massive difference. And when you have a, a user experience and a platform that's optimized for friends versus one that's optimized for interests and topics and passions, totally different, you know, everything is different. And uh, so that's one big thing. The second thing is that we really believe that, Stories are more than just a bunch of ones and zeros packaged together. Yeah. You know, the technology industry can sometimes over-rotate on the technology aspect and say, yeah, this is a great story because most people are clicking on it. But there's no algorithm for true or false, right? for fact or fiction. There's no algorithm for insightful or important or meaningful. What there are a lot of the algorithms that are out there tend to focus on is engagement right and for a very specific economic reason sure right that's their business yeah. engagement and and it's also the easiest thing to measure sure so why is that so, dangerous so it's dangerous it's because is. you're it's... allowing computers to basically then propagate content that is extremist because extremist content is going to get the most clicks mm-hmm. and extremist content is going to you know create the most emotion and passion which is going to cause the most shares and the most engagement and it all feeds on itself and so then if you're in the world of creating stories, you know, over time, one of the things that I think is very challenging is that you have a combination of factors that are causing, creating incentives for writing extremist content and link bait. You also have people that are playing into that in very strategic ways, knowing that they're writing sure. false, they're writing propaganda, and they're utilizing these algorithms to spread that propaganda. Yes, so therefore the 2016 election, there was, That's right. right. And we... You know, it may well be that those 60,000 votes that made the difference in the Electoral College were swayed by... Right, which Facebook vehemently denies. What do you think? I think that it absolutely had an impact on the electorate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, how do you quantify that? How do you prove that? It's common sense. Mm -hmm. Just look at the tonality and the extremism. And the sharing. And and the sharing. And I think, you know, people... How many people still believe that Barack Obama was born outside the U.S.? Significant percentage of people. Mm -hmm. How many people don't even know the difference between Obamacare and the uh, Affordable Health Care Act? They think they're different things. They don't realize they're the same thing. Right. An educated electorate is in all of our best interests. A, A highly charged electorate that's focused on extremist propaganda for the left or the right is, is uh, you're going to get what we get so, now. So what do you do? Because they seem to be picking 
Facebook over you or anybody who's doing something intelligent. And you what know, can I, Facebook do? I mean, I know they're trying these various things, and as usual with Facebook, it's the slow walk to the inevitable. You know what I mean? Like, oh. You're realizing you need editors. Oh, they know it. Yeah. It's not. They know. Yeah. They know it. It's just the, it's the slow walk they like to do. It takes them forever to get to the point. Um, well, and it, by the way, I think it's it's not just Facebook. It's anyone kind of deeply rooted in the world of technology yeah, I'm just using tends them to rely on be, right. tech. But yeah, I, so I, what do they as, do? They're always talking about false positives and it's mm-hmm. so difficult and it seems like it may not be quite as complex as... Right. Again, the big challenge for Facebook is if they want to be a news platform, you have to build something totally different. The idea of Facebook is very powerful, connecting people together and friends and family. And that's a mission that I think is very powerful and could do a lot of good in the world. To also try to be a platform for news and for informing people is a completely different business, architecture, and user experience. And to try to glom that on, just as if, I mean, if Flipboard were to try to go and get friends to connect, uh, you know, it just mm-hmm. wouldn't work. It's just not the same kind of sure. thing, right? So I think that that's one of the things that Silicon Valley companies sometimes can lose track of is who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the things I think at Netscape, we, we were an internet company that converted ourselves to a software company, right? right? I think that this is uh, why you see, um, it's not that they're moving slowly for any sort of nefarious reason. It's more just like, that's what technology companies do. They rely on technology and, mm-hmm. and they've built something that's with a certain center of gravity. And to do anything that's counter to that center of gravity right. is just going to take a what lot of time. What can they do? What can they? I'm using them as because they're the biggest example. Well, I think that they are onto some of the right things mm-hmm. uh, that they're doing. Uh, it's not like a, it's a pro, uh, not a problem that can't be solved. There's some very straightforward things that can be done. I think that, you know, if, if I were to uh, counsel them, I would say, you know, you really need to have those feeds be driven by editors mm-hmm. and not algorithms. Right. You know, uh, the idea of a trending news feed. We learned very early on in Flipboard, I remember seeing a story driven by algorithms, you know, when everything was powered by Twitter on Flipboard, about somebody, you know, microwaving a pet. (laughs) And I thought, okay, this is not the kind of news that people come to Flipboard to see. And the experience. And right. I mean, there's things happening in Syria and in our government and so on. This is why people want to come to read Flipboard. I'll tell you too. One of the things that I think people sometimes think is that it's only people only want to see link bait. They only want to go see yeah. these news feeds. That's just not true. Yeah, there are a lot of people, millennials included, who absolutely want to dive deep and learn. Yes, I agree. about what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. and they are thirsting for a place to do that the problem, where they can trust it. Absolutely, and the problem is this stuff is so infectious, and and I use that in the in the gross way, infectious, yeah. and and hard to look away from. And it's combined with techniques that engineers back at Google or do, Google or Facebook are doing to try to get me to look at it more. So it's like it's almost right. like a what you have it's like actually, a big old cupcake. I mean, it is you have you have you have you have the engineers working to get you to see that content more, mm-hmm. and you have the people that are writing that content who are specialists right. at, at at infusing passion and emotion in people. Yeah, so you've got to look at it. You right. can't, if you, it's sitting there like a, it's like a cupcake. Like, I got to eat it. I got to eat yeah. it. Oh, no, I had, and then you become addicted to it. That's right. I, I it's think a really of, interesting problem. I, I, I think, you know, sometimes I think of like news feeds uh, as like the mystery meat of your information <laughs> diet, you know, and, you, you know, it may be great that. initially, but then. That's a good quote, <laughs> machine, mystery meat. Well, you know, you, you, it's not like when you finish reading your Facebook feed after a half hour, you're like, that was a yeah, great use of time. Yeah, you the other day. Yeah. You know, How do you feel sick? You, you, it's like if you ate potato chips all day long, right? I mean, you have to have a balanced information diet. There's nothing wrong with looking at Facebook. It's just like, if that's all you do, then you're just going to be a product of that. Can you talk, same thing with Twitter. You were on the board of Twitter. You had to come off because there were obvious conflicts of interest with what Flipboard was doing um, and what they were doing. Did they have a news reader? No, they sort of. Not really. Not really. I mean, moments, I suppose, is kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of an effort. Kind of. What happens to them? Because they've truly become a cesspool of, of problems and they're trying hard yesterday they tried to announce some anti-trolling stuff but they've got you know trump on there doing crazy stuff and so they've never been more relevant and then they're challenged from a business point of view at the same time but one of the biggest problems is the experience the nature of the experience feels bad like it feel it can feel bad what do you imagine something like that what do they do you know i think first of all twitter is um i just have a a fondness for because they are one of the very few, it's actually, I think, the only platform where you can actually 
at message the president of the United States. Right. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And maybe he'll even reply. Yeah. Call uh, him a loser or something. I, I mean, if you think about it, like how do you get a message to the president of the United States at, before Twitter mm-hmm. or to the president of Iran? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Now, when you have a platform like that, but that's that open, then obviously it can be abused. Right. And so this is one of those very significant product challenges that you have to really work through and think about. I think Jack made some very good steps forward yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that has to be a continuous, ongoing drumbeat of improvements uh, to sort of, you know, move Twitter out of the realm of the trolls um, and back into the realm of like, you know, civilized conversation. Can it be done? It can be. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. At Twitter. At Twitter, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, look, I think it's it takes a lot of focus. Um, and, you know, part of it is that, you know, you need to kind of think about what your first principles are for your platform. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you let anyone say anything at any time without any sort of moderation, then you, which you could call free speech, um, you could also call, you know, toxic. Right. And so there has to be some mechanism. You can't yell, just as you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater, mm-hmm. the classic free speech you know, test. Yeah. There needs to be similar you know, analogies in the world of social media when it's all Why about aren't technology. There? Why aren't there? Because you, you believe in curation. Flipboard yeah. believes in curation. It's a very different high-minded compared to everyone else. And every time I go to some of these companies, they're like, well, care people should be able to do what they want. They're very libertarian. Like, yeah. And I feel like the game is fixed. They've got their engineers making you do stuff. Yeah. They create stuff that's impossible to resist. Yeah. They have a business model all there's around a, engagement. There's so a I, dark, like, and there's a dark corner around porn in yeah, a lot of these companies. Right, and, exactly. Yeah, and you're like, it's fixed. So, so it's yeah. not fair. And people can't do what they want. You're making them. You know, it's almost... It's sort of like the the, co- the the soda companies and the mm-hmm. potato chip companies. You know, they're making mm-hmm. something, or it's, even the, like it's the same thing as a cigarette company in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It's impossible. There is some responsibility there. Why don't they take responsibility? It drives you know drives me crazy, as you know. You know, I'm not close enough to these guys to know whether they're taking responsibility or not. I think a lot of it has to do with just a mentality, mm-hmm. a mentality that technology can solve the problem, technology right. alone. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just uh, something that people are starting to realize, wait a minute, maybe this is why editors are a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we have to apply some judgment. Mm-hmm. And when you start to do that, you start to then think about, okay, there are ways to like create bionic editors. There are ways to, you know, bionic scale. Editor. Yeah, to scale curation, right? right? To scale human judgment. What does that mean? Like a, a bionic. So, for example, you know, uh, you can give an editor a task to say, I want you to, you know, find these great stories. And they could go look at every single story one mm-hmm. by one. Or they could like use an algorithm to find the initial collection Bion- of stories. I thought you were going to give me like an arm or like <laughs> More like an empowered. Their editors are using technology to do their I job see. faster okay. and better, right? right? Okay. And right. you can design tools for them to do that, which is actually something we have at Flipboard is mm-hmm. a whole set of tools and analytics that allow our curators to find hot spots and problems as well as really great things that people should discover. And then they apply their own judgment on that. Yeah. So, what, But the idea of that is something they don't want to do. They got rid of editors at Facebook because the right wing went crazy. Like, mm-hmm. that's the problem. We're so partisan now. They can't just take a stand and say, we're going to do what we want to do. Well, that, that's a very good point. Kara, I think in this day and age in particular, I think it's very important for technology leaders and products to take a stand, mm-hmm. not against right or left, mm-hmm. but against, you know, truth and fiction. Right. But um, that's a problem when you've got a White House that talks about alternative facts. That's right. Have, that's- and, and, and look, you know, you're going to lose some readers or some yeah. users when you take that stand. Yeah. And you have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, right. you will kind of just be driven by the you know, all of these negative, toxic dynamics. Right. Um, if you take a stand and say, look, we're going to build a business based on, let's say, fewer users. Uh, we're going to, we're willing to they have some it. portion of our users I think not actually it. use the product. Then you actually make a better business, frankly. I agree. You, I you agree. Have, I've been saying that. I'm like, yeah. Facebook's become kind of toxic a little bit more. And it shouldn't be. Like, look what's happened to Twitter. You know, they, they didn't fix it early enough. So if you were running, you'd bring in editors, you'd, these bionic editors and things like that to try to improve that. Yeah, and I think it is absolutely, again, Jack, I think, is making some good steps forward there. 
But I would, I, I absolutely think this is a solvable problem. By the way, the other thing too, Kara, I think is it's really important for companies to cooperate on this stuff. Mm-hmm. There is actually a lot of cooperation already today on things like child pornography. Sure, they can do it on certain they things. They can share, they can share on spam. You know, we there is a lot of technology that can be brought to bear on this problem. Oh, I know. And, uh, and I think if companies collaborate more here, on techniques to deal with trolls and hate speech and uh, and so on. I mean, you shouldn't get banned from Twitter. You should get banned from all sorts of things, right? Right. right. So uh, if you if you go off the rails and 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 you know threaten somebody, that should be something that you just can't like delete an account and go do some some other social Absolutely. service or come back again. Yeah. There should be a longer lasting impact to you. Yeah. Um, I also think anonymity has a lot of uh, to do with yeah. this. You know, people their reputation anonymity can sometimes be a good thing for people who. Uh, can't speak truth to power without repercussions. On the other hand, right. uh, it can be extremely damaging. It brings out the worst in people. It does. It and I think, I think that that's, you know, there's a place for anonymity, but you can't treat all, everybody on the platform the same. If they're anonymous, they should be able to have a certain amount of impact, but not so much impact right. as the same as someone who's a verified user who clearly is a, you know, somebody who has a reputation and is, you know, you may not agree with their points of view, right. but they're not threatening people either. Right, right. Interesting. All right, we're going to finish up. Um, how much money have you raised at Flipboard? 210. That's another yeah. big amount of money. What are you going to do? Where is it going? It's all about building runway. Because you've had uh, different executives in and out. And so you, mm-hmm. you're just going to continue with this mission. We're just going to keep building what we're building. And, you know, I'm trying to recreate that idea of the magazine mm-hmm. for a, mo- a, a modern mobile social world, mm-hmm. a place you can go to read about something you love. And all you see, story after story, is about that thing that you love. And so the ads, every ad, are, 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 every ad is about that thing you are, love. Are you profitable? We were profitable in Q4. <laughs> Q4 is always the best quarter of the year. Yeah. So we had our first profitable quarter ever. We'll get there, you know, we'll get a full year of profitability, I hope, next year. Ah, being sensible. It's really hard. You could make more money being toxic. Right? <laughs> um, so very last question I ask everybody. What's the one mistake you made as an entrepreneur? If you could give a tip to an entrepreneur, or it doesn't have to be a mistake. What's one thing? That- well, I think for me, the biggest, I, I mentioned this earlier, mm-hmm. one of the biggest lessons I learned, and there's a couple of lessons I've learned. One, one is don't over-rotate on your competition. Right. Right. Two is don't think about the end game while you're play the game. Mm-hmm. You know, don't constantly think about the end game. Mm-hmm. Third, I would say is treat your team with respect and treat your users with respect and good things will happen. Uh, I've seen too many entrepreneurs try to act like they think Steve Jobs was mm-hmm. and which, you know, there were some things that he did. But on the other hand, he was also a remarkably good leader in many ways. And right. I think people can be to, you know, if you're respectful to both your users and to your team members, and you build something that has real value, you can get a lot done here in mm-hmm. the technology renaissance that we're living right. in. You can do amazing things. Right. If you try to take shortcuts, if you treat your people with a lack of respect, if you treat your users with a lack of respect, then you can also get into a lot of trouble. Although so I think- You can do that and be successful. There too. are people who can be <laughs> successful. And I think yeah. that's one of the things I you try to coach people. Like, mm-hmm. look, they just hit the lottery. They were lucky that they mm-hmm. were successful. But yeah. you know, I think that you know those are probably the biggest- lessons. I guess one last one I would say is building a company is hard work. And um, it's going to be like raising a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is one of these things that has a lot of ups and downs. And so if you're going to do it, do it for something you love and do it for something big. Because, you know, it's actually just as hard. In fact, maybe in some ways, it's even harder to build a small company, a small idea than it is a big company with a big idea that's going to change the world. So it's actually... um, one of the things that I try to help people understand if they're interested in becoming an entrepreneur is, you know, think big. Right. Do some big things. That's yeah. where the big that's where the great team members want to go. That's yeah. where the big investors want to invest in. Yeah. So don't think small and think smaller. Right. Don't. Well, that is an excellent piece of advice, Mike. Thank you so much for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Alive Course CEO Vic Gundotra, Hello Founder Orkut, and political analysts Juliana Glover and Hillary Rosen, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build.